Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Alex, I have two questions to ask you. How dare you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> oh, that's too good. Well, it's great uh, seeing everyone today. Uh, Not just the fact that there are so many of you, but to see uh, all of you, as Alex said. I'm glad that you're all here. So um, my name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, I I do want to also just say welcome and greetings to those of you who are here for baptisms. It's always such a a delight to to participate, to watch baptisms take place. Um, And so I'm just, I'm thankful um, to... to, uh, to God for uh, the church and for the opportunity and privilege that we have to witness baptisms today. So it's a very special time. I'm glad you're here. We're doing a series uh, through the Gospel of Luke. We're kind of in the middle of the book right now in chapter 12. And uh, this middle section of the book of Luke is about the teachings of Jesus, largely. It's a lot of the teachings approach Advent. And we're, we're almost upon Advent season. And as we approach Advent season, one of the common themes that we associate with Advent is this idea of peace. Uh, Jesus uh, is known to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And so without a doubt, that's what the ministry of Jesus is marked by. Jesus brings peace. It's a promise of peace. Peace with God and then peace with our fellow man, with one another. Knowing this to be true then, our text for today is a bit of a paradox because here in this text, Jesus talks about bringing division. That's different than what we commonly think. Jesus talks about how he came to disturb the peace. Jesus came to tell us how following him will disrupt our relationships, disrupt a family even. So no doubt some of you all have experienced this in your own lives. I've, I know many of you have heard many of your stories about how you, your choice to follow Christ has caused a rift within your family. It's caused a rift with those that you're close to. Um, and that, that's painful. That's difficult for you. And what Jesus says in this text is that we should expect that to happen, that we should not be surprised when that happens. So whenever you became a Christian, there might have been people that got mad at you, that, that was very upset with you. And so we could think of Jesus not only as the bringer of peace, but he is also the one who brings division. In fact, I mean, you could say that Jesus is the most divisive man in history. Yes, he is the great uniter, but he is also the great divider. Even history itself is divided along the lines of, Everything that happened before Jesus, B.C., and then everything that happened after Jesus, A.D., or B.C.E., if you're, you know, more scientifically minded or whatever, but, but still, it's like, we know what it means, you know, the thing that happened, even scientists would have to recognize, the thing that happened that divides history is Jesus came, and that's why we are, that's why we say this is the year 2022, it's, it's reckoned from the time of the arrival of Christ to recognize Christians, we know that this matters because Jesus matters. Even the haters have to recognize Jesus matters. Jesus is is pivotal in in history. And for us as Christians, Jesus matters more than anything else. He matters the most 
because he is worth it. Our life and our hope is found in Jesus Christ. If we have Christ, then we have everything. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to read through the the text for today, and then we'll go back through it verse at a time. So this is Luke 12, starting in verse 49. This is Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth. This is Jesus saying this. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one family or in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the word of God. Okay, let's uh, work through this text a verse at a time. And so we'll switch over to the iPad here. Are we on the screen? Do we have it there yet? Is it coming up? If not, is it, is it not coming through there? Let me try to, let me try to display it again. There we go. Okay. There were two options that I could have pressed, and I guess I pressed the wrong button. I'll remember that. Okay, so two things that Jesus says here first. He says, I came. um, Well, where's our marker? Oh, come on. All right, let let me back out of this. Let me try it the other way again. Okay, there we go. I came, so that's a, that's a statement of purpose. He's saying, here's what I did. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. It's not yet, but he wishes that we're already kindled. Then here's another statement. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Two things here. We have a fire, there's one, and we have a baptism, that's number two. Let's talk about these. We'll start with the word fire. When he says fire, it's not obvious what he's referring to. Um, But whatever the fire is, Jesus is the one who's going to start it. So Jesus came to start this fire. So let me ask you this question. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? If I were to ask you that, is fire a good thing or a bad thing, what would you say? (laughs) right yes well you'd say yeah I guess it depends it depends on where it is and what is it that is on fire Uh, so if you have a fire that's in a fireplace well that's a good thing it's keeping your family warm on a snowy night or really freezing cold day like today that's a good thing but if that fire gets out of the fireplace and it's on the rug and it burns the rug and then it spreads to the couch and then it spreads to the drapes and then it starts to consume the house, that's a bad fire. It's the same fire, but in one place it's a good thing, but in another place it's a bad thing. The same fire can be either good or bad depending on where it is and what it's consuming. And that's the thing about fire. Fire consumes. 
fire changes or transforms things. And that makes, that, that's what makes the difference. So a fire in your oven can take a raw turkey and can cook it to make it a Thanksgiving meal. That's a good thing. But a fire can also spread throughout the forest. And it can blaze out of control and turn acres of trees into smoldering rubble. That's a bad thing. Same fire. So what is the fire that Jesus is talking about here? Is this a good fire or is it a bad fire? And Elijah, your answer is correct. The answer is yes. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing, depending on who you are. That Jesus has talked, what is your relationship to it? So um, I think the fire that Jesus is talking about here, here's my thesis and then I'll, I'll demonstrate this. The fire that Jesus is talking about here is the fire of God's presence as he is revealed to a sinful world. The fire of God's presence as he is revealed to a sinful world. So um, Hebrews chapter 12, this, is, this text is quoting Deuteronomy 4. But this text in Hebrews says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There it is. Our God is a consuming fire. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is telling of the story of the Exodus. It's, It's like a sermon of Moses. And he's, he's recounting for God's people the events that took place when God rescued them out of Egypt in the book of uh, Exodus. So in the Old Testament, God often appeared to people as a fire. You know, uh, one of the early examples is Genesis 15, whenever God appeared to Abraham. And he, he made this covenant with Abraham. And in that appearance, God appeared to Abraham as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Then if you move into the book of Exodus, I'll give you a few examples here. Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in the form of a what? A burning bush. That's right. The flame of fire out of the midst of a bush is the exact language. There was a bush that was burning with fire, but it was not cons- the Lord's. And then Exodus chapter 9, as God was judging Egypt, it says, The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So that was a fire of judgment. Exodus 13, God appeared to his people, and this is as they were wandering through the wilderness. God appeared to his people there in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that fire at nighttime was both heat and light. That it, it lit up the, the direction they were going, and a fire, it would, it would have kept them warm because at nighttime in a desert, it can get very cold. Exodus 24, God now appeared to his people on the top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, on the top. And it says here, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. So now God's presence of the fire, it started off in a bush, and then it was leading him through the desert. And now it's moved up to the top of this mountain where God appeared to them. And while he was there, he was revealing himself to them by, re- by giving them his law. That's his word. He's revealing himself. Last one here, Exodus chapter 40. So at the very end of the book of Exodus, now God, God's people are on the move again. But now they have this portable temple that they take with them called the tabernacle. And so God appeared in the tabernacle. And there was a cloud that enveloped this tabernacle. And there was a fire within this tabernacle. 
God appeared to his people in the form of a fire. It was his presence in the midst of his people. If you were one of God's people, if you're Abraham, if you're Moses, if you're one of the, 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 the people of Israel, then that's a good fire. It's leading you. It's revealing himself to you. It's speaking God's words to you. It's keeping you warm. It's lighting up your path. But if you're one of God's enemies, if you're in Egypt, then it's a fire of judgment that is raining down God's judgment upon you literally. God is still the fire, but your relationship to him determines whether or not it's a good fire or a bad fire. So the fire then represented two things. One, a fire of blessing, if you're one of God's people. If you're Moses or people of Israel, it's a good thing. But also, number two, it's a fire of judgment. And that is if you're, um, if you're Pharaoh or one of the Egyptians or one of God's enemies. So whenever Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth... He's talking about a fire like this, a fire that that discloses who God is, a fire that tells us, this is your God, this is who he is, and your relationship to him determines how you receive it, how you experience it. So for those who believe in Christ, it's a good fire. That's Jesus' disciples. It's a good fire. They hear the word of God. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, that's, it's, it's, it still applies. If you're a Christian here today, then, then you know Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. You hear the word of God, and you hear this idea of a fire, and it, 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 it's, not, it's not a terror to you because you know that Christ is your advocate. He is your savior. So you hear the word of God. You receive it. You believe it. You obey it. And for you, for those of you who are Christians, the gospel message is a sign of blessing. It's the fire of God's presence, but it blesses you. It keeps you warm. It comforts you. It lights up your path. It's a good thing. God has shown you his favor. That is the peace of God that can be represented as a fire, but it's a peace with God. His grace is upon you. But for people who do not believe in Christ, it's a bad fire. It it, it can be a threat. It can be a terror to them. And so Jesus' presence amongst, let's say, the Pharisees or amongst some of the other people who opposed him, Jesus' presence was like a fire, but it was like a fire of judgment to them. They didn't like it. Or even worse, eternally, it would be a fire of hell. That's the, the same idea is, is the, the idea of, of God's judgment. It's a fire. Now, whenever Jesus says he wishes the fire were already kindled, that means that it's not quite that. He, he wishes it were, but there's something that needs to happen first. And what needs to happen first is a baptism. So we go back to the previous. There is a baptism that still needs to happen. So he says, I wish that it were already kindled, but it's not yet because I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. So whatever the baptism is, is something that hasn't taken place just yet. The word until there means that he's still anticipating the baptism. So once the baptism is accomplished, then the fire can be cast upon the earth. So let's talk about the baptism. What does that mean? The baptism that he's talking about here, it's a reference to his humiliation and his suffering and his death on the cross for human sin. That's Jesus' baptism. Now, whenever we use the word baptism, so we're going to have a baptism later on today, what we mean by baptism is something that we do with water. The word literally means to dip or to plunge under or to immerse, something along those lines. That's what the word baptism means. 
And whenever we use it, we're talking about water. It's safe. You're not going to get burned in crutter. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is a sign of a person's faith in Christ. So the baptism is an identification with Christ. Whenever Jesus uses the word baptism here, though, he's got a different meaning of it. His baptism is about his suffering and his crucifixion and his death. So as we would be plunged underwater, the word baptism for, in Jesus' use is he's being plunged into this, this suffering, plunged underneath the weight of judgment. So we use the word baptism to represent our identification with Christ. So our baptism is done with water, and it's a symbol that we are associated with Jesus in the baptism that he went through, which is his suffering and his death and his resurrection. So what Jesus is saying here is that it's the fact that he cannot kindle this fire that he wants to kindle until he has accomplished this baptism of suffering that he's yet to go through. So the fire is the fire of God's revelation, right? So Jesus will reveal God on the earth, and the way that God will be revealed through Christ is through this baptism, this suffering, this rejection. He will be mocked, he will be beaten, he will be tortured, and he will be executed and hung until he's dead on a Roman cross. He will bear the catastrophic weight of human sin against a holy God. That is Jesus' baptism. And then he will be raised to life on the third day. So that whoever believes in Jesus could be forgiven of their sin and receive life from him. That's what Jesus' baptism is. And that's the fire. So now we take the two words, fire and baptism. We put them two together. Whenever we think of them together, it's a little bit easier to see what he's talking about. So fire, fire is the revealing of God. It's, it's, it's the knowledge of God being spread upon the earth. The knowledge of God. For those of you watching on the live stream, I know you can't see this, um, but we have a little adapter uh, whatever you call it, <laughs> and it should be set up uh, for the next time that we do it. Um, so the fire is the knowledge um, that is spread on the earth. I'll just say the knowledge of God on the earth. And then baptism is the thing that must happen in order to reveal him. It is the suffering of Jesus. And his resurrection. So the fire refers to the presence of a perfect and holy God as he is revealed to a world that is sinful and rebellious. So the, the, the revealing of God, this is back in Old Testament times, the revealing of God is this pure and bright holiness of his presence. And nobody could approach God because we're sinful, right? So the holy presence of God is lethal to sinful human beings. We can't just approach him. The only way that anybody could safely encounter God is to, to be purified first, to be forgiven, to be made clean, to be washed, and for our sins to be dealt with. Otherwise, there is no approaching a holy God. The baptism, then, is the way that Jesus makes that possible. 
so that the fire, as it spreads across the earth, the fire of the knowledge of God would not just consume everybody in its path as we're wiped out by his holiness. No, it's, it's, it's a fire of a, of a revealing of a message that you can now approach God safely through faith in Jesus Christ. You can come to him being forgiven of your sin because Jesus suffered the, the, the wrath. He suffered the penalty of your sin in your place. So this baptism then, Jesus makes it possible for sinful and rebellious people to draw near to God. He suffered in our place. He died in our place. He took upon himself the stain of human guilt and the fire of God's wrath. So that through faith in Christ, his perfection, his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness can then be given to us. We are made righteous. Through Christ, through faith in him, not because we've earned it or because we've accomplished it ourselves. No, Jesus accomplished it himself through his baptism. Our baptism in water is simply a way that we say, I believe that. That's true, and I want that to apply to me, and I'm thanking God that it does. And then the church affirms that as we witness the baptized people of God who also share that same belief with you. So, you've done. When anybody, and by anybody, I mean anybody, no matter what you've done, no matter what is in your past, no matter what sins you've committed or how guilty you feel or or what terrible things that it's in your life, and when anybody confesses their sin and says, God, I want your forgiveness, I want Jesus' baptism to apply to my life, when anyone does that and they believe God's promise, it's done. They are forgiven. They are given eternal life. It's the life of Christ is now given to them. And that person's sin is gone. It's been washed away. And the fire of God's holy presence now dwells within them. The fire has, has been lit in them. They've caught fire in a good way. They've caught fire. And it's, it is not an accident that often in Scripture you see the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers is associated with fire. So the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, they said to one of them, did not, the, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the way? Whenever the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, how did he appear? Tongues of fire that, that was distributed to each person. The Holy Spirit is associated with fire. It's like the fire, the match has been lit. And now the fire has been cast on the earth. And wherever the gospel message goes, the fire of God goes with them. And other people, they get caught they get, they get burned in a good way, right? They, they, are, they are baptized into the baptism of Jesus and they too believe and they have their sins forgiven and so the fire of God's presence is now lit within them. Amen. Let me show you one other thing, the Holy Spirit, um, instance where the words fire and baptism are paired together regarding the Holy Spirit. This is uh, Luke chapter three, verse 16. So this is back at the beginning. John the Baptist was, um, was baptizing people a baptism of repentance. So another, another uh, meaning of baptism. John said to them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, that's Jesus, he who is mightier than I is coming. Oh, come back here. The thing is, like I touch it, and it's like, it's like it messes with my screen here. Okay, I think I have to back out again.
Okay, I baptize you with water, but he, he who is mightier than I is coming. That's Jesus. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you. So this is the baptism of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Whenever a person becomes a Christian, they are baptized spiritually. There's a water baptism that corresponds to it that happens later publicly like this. But the only people who are worthy of this sort of baptism are people who have already been baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. That means the match of the gospel has been lit within their soul. They believe it, and they are declaring unqualified allegiance to King Jesus. That's who we baptize in water. But the baptism that they've received is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that has, been, that, that has already been lit within them. Now, the next thing that I want you to notice here is it connects to where we're going next. His winnowing fork is in his hand. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a different fire, isn't it? So we have two kinds of people. You know what a winnowing fork is? It's like if you're on a threshing floor. Um, I don't know if they still do it this way, but a threshing floor, you're, you're, you're separating the wheat from the chaff, and, and then the wheat fork, and you would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and then the wheat would fall to the ground, and you would separate the wheat from the chaff with this fork. And the chaff, you know, if it, if it were, you could burn it, or you, could, you would discard it. It's not, it. it's not the wheat. The wheat is the part that you keep. So we have this baptism here where a person is baptized into uh, the gospel. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then there's this winnowing fork idea where things are separated. So the man, Jesus Christ, who brings this baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's got this winnowing fork. And what he's going to do is he is going to separate people according to their loyalties. Those that are loyal to him, who are followers of Christ, who become Christians, who have their sins forgiven, those people are the wheat. And he gathers those into his barn. He takes them home. They're his. But then those who are not followers of Christ, they've rejected the gospel. They do not believe. They're, they're the chaff. And they are also burned with a fire. It's a different kind of fire. It's a fire of judgment. You see a vision. So notice then that the winnowing fork is a tool of division that separates the wheat from the chaff. Now that's where we're headed next. This is the, the next little section of our text for today. This is where Jesus, he says the thing about fire and the thing about baptism, and then he asks this rhetorical question, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? And we're like, well, yeah, Jesus, of course, right? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Obviously, Jesus, obviously. That's why you're here. You're here to bring peace. I mean, we celebrated Christmas whenever you were born. We had the, the angels, you know, and they were singing and the shepherds, and it was this real sweet, this sweet thing. Of course you came to bring peace. Jesus says, not so fast. No, I tell you, but rather division. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus came to make us divisive people? No, he, does, he didn't come to make us jerks or rude or, or anything like that. He's saying he's, the, the sort of division he's talking about is a division between his followers and those who reject him. He came to, to separate people, to, to, to form an alliance 
around his house that there will be five of his followers. And so he says, from now on, in one house that there will be five divided. Five, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Listen, Jesus did not come to negotiate terms of peace with the world. He came to rule. Jesus is king. And he is worthy of our utter unqualified allegiance. That's who he is. He didn't come to, to offer a truce. He came to say, if you want to be saved, you follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now that's, people hate that verse. It's so exclusive. Of course it's exclusive. Because Jesus was exclusive. Jesus, in this sense, follow him or not. He came to bring a division. He came to force a choice. Are you going to follow him or not? That's, that's what he did. So he came to rule as a king, and ultimately, he will divide all of humanity into whether or not they submit to his rule. I want to read to you um, Matthew's version of this same text. So this is the same teaching, but a lot of times in the Gospel of Matthew, he, he gives a little bit more words, a little bit more detail than Luke gives you, and the detail that, that Matthew gives you uh, that it colors out the picture a little better. So this is the same text in Matthew. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then what we've already seen. I've come to set man against father and uh, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So there might be somebody, an aunt or uncle, brother, sister, mother, father, child, that in some ways they regard you as an enemy because you follow Christ and they do not. Jesus is saying, we should not be surprised if that happens. That's, that, is a, that is a routine occurrence within God's people. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the division part. If, if you are more committed to your relationships with people and less committed to your relationship with Christ, then Jesus says you're not worthy of him. I mean, these are hard words. I mean, we can acknowledge these are hard words, but Jesus is telling us an eternal truth that we need to hear, right? So he's saying that our else, that to Christ has to supersede every other human loyalty. There cannot be anything else that competes for the highest allegiance of our heart. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So that sentence indicates that Jesus knows this is hard. It's a cross to bear. It's suffering. I mean, as I'm speaking right now, there's, there, for some of you, there may be an ache in your heart for people that you care about and you love deeply. And they don't know Christ and it breaks your heart. And you're estranged from that person because you follow Christ. Friends, that, 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 is, a, that, is, a, that is a cross to bear. And Jesus, he, he understands, right? I mean, Jesus knows 
that this is, it's a big ask. But of course, our soul is worth it. I mean, like, there's nothing more precious that we could have than our own soul. And so he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So whenever you lose a relationship like that, it's, it's, you're, it's, it is a loss. You feel it as a loss. But it's a loss that will lead to you finding life in Christ because you are, you're, you're demonstrating your, your loyalty and allegiance to him. It's interesting that he uses the word sword. What do swords do? They divide. Swords cut, right? They cause division. And that's what the truth of the gospel does. The truth of the gospel forces this division to take place. It's, um, you know, the Ephesians 5, when you look at the armor of God, put on the whole armor. Um, what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. The sword of Spirit is the truth. The Word of God, it, it, it cuts, right? I mean, like, whenever Jesus comes in Revelation, what does he have coming out of his mouth? He has a sword. He's not doing a circus trick. <laughs> He's not going to swallow you know, flaming whatever next. It's like he's got a sword coming out of his mouth to symbolize that he's speaking words and that his words are words of truth. And truth is a sword that cuts. So whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, there is this division that takes place. Some will believe and some will not. That's a reality that we have to grapple with. It can be a very difficult reality. And I want to give you some points of application in a moment. But, but I, we just need to acknowledge that this is, this is a, a, a difficult thing that we're called to do as believers. And it's not just families, you know, brother, sister, mother, father relationships. It's, it's any relational group, any relational system, friends, coworkers, uh, any other type of group. A person who is more loyal to Christ than anyone else, that person may have problems with the group. That's Jesus' lesson. So let me summarize where we are so far. Jesus came to reveal the fire of God's presence through a baptism, which was for Christ, a death, burial, and resurrection. That's the fire. And that fire will spread as the gospel is preached on the earth. And so we're, I don't know, a thousand, couple thousand miles away from where this stuff happens. It's spread. This fire has been spread and it's spreading all over the earth and it continues to do so. The fire spreads as the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that phenomenon will also cause a division relationally. Let me give you three points of application. The first one is this. Christians are called to be at peace with others. Christians are called to be at peace with others. This text represents a particular dynamic but not the totality of what it means to be a Christian. It's not, well, there's just division everywhere and we should just get used to it. No, he's talking about a particular dynamic. Jesus died to give us peace. Peace with God, peace with fellow man. And so the normal Christian life is peaceful. Our disposition is peaceful. We're called to live peaceably, to pursue peace versus as possible. I did a search for this in my Bible software and there's, I want to read you a few verses here, but there's too many to, to, to read them all. I mean, it's dozens. But here's a sample. Romans 14. 1419 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. 2 Corinthians 13:11 says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then uh, lastly, Galatians 5.22, we have the fruit of the Spirit. So it's kind of like God's top 10 list minus one of character traits of a Christian. And, but rounding out the top three, peace comes in at number three. Love, joy, peace. So the Christian life is absolutely marked by peace. Christians are not called to be contentious. Or, and we, that's a sin. We're not called to be divisive. And that's a temptation for many Christians. And we just have to say, hey, that's, that's a sinful disposition. All right, that's number one. Number two, application point. Faithfulness to Christ will often create conflict with others. Faithfulness to Christ will often create conflict with others or create even a division with others. And sometimes that is inevitable and it's unavoidable. This is because Christians must give Christ priority over every other human relationship. Jesus must be first. There's no other loyalty. Christ is the highest loyalty. John 15, 18 Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that, he, that it has hated me first. It has hated me before it hated you. That's uh, John 15, 18. So sometimes being faithful to Christ will disturb the peace of other people. Not because you're trying to be contentious. Not because you're trying to be in you problem. But simply because Christ is in you. And Christ being in you will we'll be like the fire, the fire that could, could uh, feel to them like a fire of judgment. And people may respond to you the same way they responded to Jesus. How did they respond to Jesus? Well, they either loved him or they hated him, typically. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. So some people in your life will be drawn closer to the fire of the gospel that burns within you. They'll see the life of God in you and they'll want to be near it. They'll be drawn to that. The heat and the light of that fire is comforting and warm for them. And so the, those are people that you obviously want to make sure you're sharing the gospel with. So that they too can have that match lit in their own soul. And the Holy Spirit can baptize them with the fire of the gospel. And they too can, can be a part of the kingdom. But some people are going to be repelled by the fire, and they don't want to get too close. And they're going to keep their distance. So there's this natural division that takes place between the repentant Christian and the unrepentant. Point, between those who believe and those who do not believe. Here's the third and final application point. Whenever this kind of conflict happens, stand your ground. Whenever this kind of conflict happens, stand your ground. Not to be quarrelsome but to be firm. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Now, pay attention to this. This is, Paul is dealing with the way that we interact with other people. And he says, repay no one evil for evil. So somebody hates you for being a Christian, don't just return that hatred to them. No, we love our enemies, right? So repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, here's, here's, here's the key text, Romans 12, 18. If possible, 
So if means sometimes, but not always. Possible means the same thing. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it doesn't depend on you. Sometimes it's not possible. And when that happens, and that's, when, that's the sort of scenario that Jesus is talking about here. And when that happens, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Oops, I messed up again. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When somebody rejects you for being a Christian, you'll be tempted to do something. Here's the temptation whenever there's this conflict. You'll be tempted to sacrifice truth on the altar of relationship. That will be the temptation. You'll be tempted to sacrifice truth on the altar of relationship. Why? Well, the relationship is visible. It's tangible. You know them. You see them. That's, that, that's visible. And your faith is invisible. You can see the distress, the contempt, the frustration, the hurt, the pain. You can see it on the face of the person that you love. You cannot see that on the face of God. You believe that by faith. But faith is not something that you can see with your eyes. And so the temptation will be to give up something that you can't see. That's easier. So there are some Christians that have this peace at all costs sort of mindset. And that's dangerous. Peace at all costs Christians have a good impulse to preserve the relationship. That's a good thing. We care about people. We're not, we're not quarrelsome. We don't want to be needlessly combative. So that's a good thing. But the cost to preserve that relationship that you can see is often the truth or the faith that you cannot see. So what you end up doing is you put the person and your relationship with them in the driver's seat of your faith. And that's a road to compromise. That's a road to abandoning the faith even. Of, of being disloyal to Christ because you've allowed a human being to We need to be prepared for allegiance. So that's why we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared the fact that this may happen. For many of you, it's already happened. And that temptation, that pull, is to say and do things in such a way to preserve the relationship, but it compromises what is true. The cost of preserving a relationship that you can see is often the truth that you can't see. And so if peace and unity, if that's your ultimate goal, then truth will often be the price that you pay to maintain it. We can't do that. Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible. Well, what's the one situation where it's not possible? At least if maintaining the relationship requires you to deny your faith or to compromise your faith or to compromise some aspect of your faith. You can't do that because your loyalty to Christ has to be above everything else. The tension is between the relational peace you want to maintain and the truth that you're committed to. And so Paul is telling us as best you can, if it's possible, as much as it is, you just cannot go. Go as far as you can. Do everything you can to maintain the peace but there are some places you just cannot go. A common way this plays out relationally is uh, where men and women have different relational impulses. And so often with men, men would be committed to some truth that they believe, and they're tempted to break the peace too quickly, to, uh, to fight for something they think is right, and to, well, you're dead to me then, if you, if you disagree. 
And that's why warnings in Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, talks about uh, men, hey, hold hands in prayer without, or hold your hands up with uplifted hands in prayer without quarreling. Because <laughs> guys can do that. Guys can brawl and they can argue about theology or whatever else. That's, the temptation for men is to, put, um, is to be, be dismissive of the relationship. Women have, a diff, have the opposite temptation. Women are more relationally wired. And so women are often committed to relational peace and they're tempted to sacrifice truth to keep the peace. So in, in either of these two situations, the thing we need to do is just keep the first and second great commandments in the right order. You remember the first great commandment? Amen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. The, pri- the order is important. Our love for God, our commitment and loyalty to God is primary. So as much as it is possible, we want to be able to maintain both. But if the person in the secondary position is, in, is demanding something of you, where you that would cause you to invert it, where they're demanding you a loyalty, or they say, hey, I, if, you don't, if you don't quit this Christianity nonsense, uh, I'm done with you, well, then they're going to just have to be done with you because you're keeping the priorities in the right order. You have two priorities to maintain, peace with everyone, but also truth. And truth is the highest priority. But if you're forced to choose, truth has to win. If you choose peace over truth, then you've committed a sin, and now you've disrupted a different peace. You've disrupted your peace with God because you've chosen an idol. You've chosen a created thing rather than the creator. I like the way Martin Luther said it. So this is a principle that will serve you well. He said, I have it on the screen here, truth at all costs, peace if possible. He lived his life by that. Truth at all costs, peace if possible. So finally, as we wrap up here, I just want to to remind us of this, that no matter what happens, if you're in a situation right now that following Christ has hurt you in some way because you've, you've held to a principle, held to a truth, and there are other people in your life that have rejected that, then Please remember this. Jesus is worth it. You've made the right choice. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is your Savior. He is life. He is everything. Nobody else can come even close to what Christ has done for you and what he can give you. So keep your eyes on Jesus. One of the Bible's richest pictures of blessing is shalom, which in English we translate that as peace. Now that's such a rich concept. And that's one of the things that makes Advent so special. Is it's, it's this announcement that in the arrival of Christ is the arrival of peace. Peace with God. Peace with fellow man. Isaiah prophesied that the coming of the Messiah, he will be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Whenever Luke describes the birth of Christ and the angels came and appeared to the shepherds and they were singing the song, they were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then in the gospel of John, at the resurrection of Christ, three times he appeared to his disciples and every time he appeared to them, he had a very short, simple sermon to preach to them. Peace be with you. Jesus brings peace. We have forgiven real peace. 
And he came and he suffered a baptism on earth that we may all be forgiven. May all of us in this room, may we all know that kind of peace. May we all be forgiven. May we all be saved from our sin. Jesus came to kindle a fire on the earth. And may we all be warned and comforted by that fire and not burned by that fire. And in the inevitable division that will happen as a result, may we all be on the side of the peace of God, of faith in Christ, of hope in Christ, of belief and loyalty to Christ above all. I mean, that's a precious treasure. Having this peace with God is a precious treasure, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. We praise God and we thank God for that. And so may the God, or may the hope of God's peace May that be the song of our hearts as we enter into Advent season. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you and thank you that you sent your one and only Son, that we can have life in Christ, that we can know the peace of God, that we can have our sins forgiven, and that we can be brought into sonship, adopted into your family, that we can know eternal life through faith in Christ. And so we worship you and praise you as the God of peace. And Lord, as we experience in our relationships division because of our loyalty to Christ, I pray, Lord, for comfort for those who have experienced that. Lord, I pray that you will protect us from that. Lord, I thank you for the friends here today that are being baptized. That Thank you, Lord, that they are experiencing the baptism of water identifying with the baptism of suffering of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for their salvation. Thank you, God, for their family or friends that are here with them. Thank you, God, that you suffered in our place to make it possible for these people to come and celebrate with us as a church body eternal life and forgiveness of sin in Christ. And so we praise you and we give you all thanks in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.